This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. When I think about my own attitude to ageing and growing older, I'm sure I'm much more optimistic about it than I was five, six years ago because I've seen people just turn their lives completely upside down and find themselves doing things that they hadn't imagined for a moment they'd be doing. Katie Waldegrave is an anti-ageism activist and a campaigner. She co-founded the UK-based charity Now Teach, which promotes the employment of older people as teachers so that experiences and wisdom can be shared with younger generations. Hello again. Welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Aging is an inevitable reality for all of us. And as we grow, our bodies need more care to stay fit and healthy. But is a good diet and plenty of exercise enough? We can supplement our bodies with nutritional add-ons to keep our energy up and make healthy aging a reality. But even if we have the best information about what's needed, can we trust the products we're sold? Vitality Pro has followed the latest in longevity science to produce a range of premium quality nutritional supplements focused on supporting better cellular health, sleep, and energy levels. They're made with the purest raw ingredients and tested by third-party labs. Their certificates are available to view so that you can have confidence in the supplements you take. Restore your cellular health. Visit vitality-pro.com. Free worldwide shipping is available. Now, there is clearly much more to living a long, healthy, fulfilling life than diet and exercise, two topics that we, I think quite rightly, spend a lot of time on during this podcast. During this episode, we're going to explore societal attitudes towards growing old and how negative impressions of the ageing process can start at a very young age and possibly influence how long we live, how long you live. Katie Waldegrow, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And I've, I've never heard myself described as an anti-aging campaigner, but I like it. So thank you. <laughs> well, I've read a few of the, the articles that you've uh, written, and I think that's what you do. And you, you do it very effectively. Well, thank you. I just want to start with that final thought from my introduction that mm-hmm. ageist attitudes can actually start at a very young age. And there is research to back this up that it could actually affect how long you live. It actually does. And this is what I find totally fascinating. So as you say, a lot of research showing it starts very, very early on. I'm interested. I have three small children and I've begun to notice that the six-year-olds already use old as a sort of pejorative, as a kind of, uh, and I think they get it from books. You know, there's, they're always, I mean, you get some wise witches or wise wizards, but a lot of older sort of, you know, Roald Dahl and people are full of the old is generally bad. So it does start early, but just as you say, that is bad for the current older people, if you like. But overwhelmingly, it's also bad for that younger ageist person that if we have older, you know, if if we have ageist attitudes, assumptions around decline and sort of things all getting worse the older we get, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And actually, as a teacher, which is my background, that makes 
perfect sense when you think about it. The, the first thing you learn when you learn to teach is how much it's about high expectations and how much pupils will fulfill the expe- expectations you place upon them. So of course, of course, if we think that we won't take exercise at 70 or whatever it is, we probably won't. And then we won't be so fit. And, and so it all goes. And it's interesting to me that the more you look into this, the more the the symbols, uh, the ageist symbols are around us, uh, whether it's drawings in, in children's books, mm-hmm. whether it's road signs mm-hmm. of the older people stooped with a walking stick. Well, not necessarily are you going to be like that, at the, as you, you say, 70 or whatever the age is. Yes. And it's clear, it's quite easy to see how these impressions are implanted on, on young people very, very early on. And presumably, I don't know, it's like training a dog. The earlier you teach something, the harder it is for them to forget something. Those attitudes are going to stay with them for a long time. I think that's exactly right. And so I think teaching is a particularly interesting profession for us to be thinking about that. I belong to various forums called things like Diverse Ed, which are all very important. But I do feel, in education at least, I don't know if it's the same elsewhere, that age is the sort of forgotten protected characteristic, if you like, that we we talk to young people a lot. I don't know how well we always do it, but about race, about gender, about sexuality and stuff. We are, we, are, we understand that we have a big role to play there in, in challenging some of the stereotypes and some of the sort of egregious comments and society attitudes. But we, we don't really talk about age, I don't think. And I don't want to be one of those people that adds, you know, with every problem, the answer is, well, make the teachers teach it. It's not that, but it's that if we, the grown-ups, are conscious of it and understand it, then we must, it is part of our job as parents, as teachers, as everybody else, to think about, you know, to think about the messages we're giving. And it's such a peculiar-ism in that sense, because God willing, we'll all, we'll all get there. And yet why we other our future selves so much is increasingly mysterious, really. So, Katie, just uh, before we delve into the subject even more, tell me about your own background and uh, essentially how you got to this point. And, and our conversation so far, I think, perhaps reminds me to ask you about any influences on you as, as a younger person that maybe have stuck with you, that you've, with experience and, and wisdom, tried to shake off. Tried to shake off or or perhaps hold on to as well is when I thought you were going there. But um, I think, so, so my, my sort of working background, if you like, is that um, on leaving university, I started teaching with a newly formed organisation called Teach First um, in its first year, which is, they have the equivalent in America, Teach for America. It's essentially uh, putting graduates into quite challenging secondary schools to, to work there. And so I, I worked for five years I think in that school and towards the end of it set up a charity called First Story which works in that sort of type of school if you like on creativity and literacy so I set it up with the writer the author William Fines truly trying to do the kind of thing that happens in some of the most fancy private schools here but doesn't typically happen in in what we tend to call challenging schools and it was wonderful and it continues and we publish books and it's all about trying to find give children a voice. Um, I then did various things including moved off to India for a bit. And when I came back from India, I met the writer, journalist Lucy Kellaway of the FT. Um, she was at that stage 57, I think, and beginning to think that maybe her days at the FT, she loved it in one sense, but actually she also knew she wasn't learning anything anymore. She wasn't necessarily getting better at her craft and she wasn't sure she wanted to do it for the next 
20 years and she was thinking of becoming a teacher and was interested in my experience as someone who'd been a teacher but also set up a social enterprise. I had just had twins a couple of months earlier so I was just in the in the market for an adult conversation and she came for a coffee in the morning and she stayed all day and by the end of that Now Teach I think had been born really and the idea for Now Teach was simply whether would there be some other crazy people like Lucy who'd had long successful interesting careers or you know who would consider jacking it all in starting again by definition being bad at something for a while at least because you are when you start to teach in the interest of being useful of returning to the community of working with younger people of some sense of sort of giving back and you know these these phrases are hackneyed but but real I think as as you begin to look at the work next so we started on a wing and a prayer not sure if anyone else at all would join us and we made lots of mistakes along the way, but I think in that instinct that there would be other people in that boat. You know, after all, I'd say a generation ago at sort of 57, you were probably thinking, well, not that long ago and long to hold on until I sort of golf or whatever you do. And now at 57, that's neither desirable nor feasible for lots of reasons. And so we've now got this this tribe of 500 teachers will be closer to 700 by September. And it's been incredibly humbling and a sort of fascinating experiment in a way to do that so that's that's now teach and and what I guess I've been focusing on doing for the last well six years because the twins are now six (laughs) it's it's fascinating and what I'm curious about is and I'm in that age group I just turned 60 a few months ago and a lot of people in my profession the broadcasting and journalism profession that that get to this age and might have spent 30 years with whatever broadcasting organization and decide that as you've eloquently described now is isn't the time for retirement for a lot of people. It is time to do something. But taking that leap involves a leap of faith for a lot of people. It involves a, a brave decision to turn their back on what they've been doing and, and to try something new. So I'm just wondering, from the people you've spoken mm-hmm. to that have done this, what, what is the thought process? Well, I think for a lot of people, there's been a niggling idea of, of teaching or changing more broadly for a long time. And I think, too, that it often takes a life event. So people might have had that thought. They might even have semi-seriously investigated it at some point. And then usually, yeah, I think I would say usually, there's something like a parent dying is quite often a a trigger. Children moving out, perhaps a divorce. Um, Lucy had all three of those, actually, um, within sort of swift succession. And perhaps just make people think with a slightly greater degree of urgency that this is the time, you know, it isn't going to go on forever. Or indeed that if it's, you know, children moving out, say, that actually, you know, weirdly, you suddenly become a little more time and perhaps even cash rich than you've been for, you know, 20 years. And that makes you reassess what you want to do with that time as well. So that is often a kind of, there's often a more personal immediate trigger to something that kind of has been rumbling along underneath for a while. Can be dissatisfaction. I think more often it's less dissatisfaction with what everyone is doing, but but the sense of not learning and not getting better, I think, matters. Sort of not looking ahead with excitement or indeed with anxiety, which is part of both of those things, I think. And what do you say to people who might have a 
a yearning to to start learning again, but also a fear of mm-hmm. starting to learn again. Because learning for a lot of us was thirty or forty years ago in school and in college or university, and it wasn't always a pleasant experience. It was uh, for, for some of that time, it was just something you got through to get on with your career, and you couldn't wait for it to be over. And I think that feeling might stay with you, even though you feel like you you want to do something new, you want to get those, you want to glean that knowledge, but something might be. In the background, saying, "Hang on a minute." I think the fear is very real, even if even if perhaps you quite enjoyed learning then, or or enjoyed formal education. And yes, certainly, if you if you didn't, having said that, all now teachers, I think without exception, would say that there is something rejuvenating is a word that comes up a lot, which is odd because it's exhausting and tiring and all the rest of it, but. Some of those things that we actually we associate with being young, because they're things we do when we're we're young, is to is to be learning, is to be afraid, is to be not sure we're going to get it right. That that sort of part and parcel of being young, and actually, weirdly, perhaps counterintuitively, it's something people quite relish experiencing again because they haven't done it for some time. And in a funny way, although it is tough being in that position when you're older and you've expected to become, you know, very good at what you do, when you've been used to being that person who knows exactly what they're doing and can explain to incompetent people like me how to put the microphone in and all the rest of it, to not be good at something is hard. But there is also a way in which you have a greater confidence than you did when you were 21 and proving yourself you know you can do this you don't quite judge yourself entirely on whether or not you can do the next thing and so it's a different kind of fear but people you know I I have been endlessly humbled we weren't honestly sure we would find people who thought this was a good plan but I think there's something really exciting and when I think about my own attitude to aging and, and growing older I'm sure I'm much more optimistic about it than I was five six years ago because I've seen people just turn their lives completely upside down and find themselves doing things that they hadn't imagined for a moment they'd be doing. That's energising and exciting in itself. And is there something invigorating about the process of learning? Of course, uh, by its very nature, you will be learning potentially alongside people who are significantly younger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Is there something invigorating about the generations mixing together like well, that? Yeah, and as you imply, it's a two-way process or three-way if you include the sort of the younger teachers and the the younger students you know it's we don't do enough of that and I think probably COVID exacerbated that and but you know it feels like that's been a trend over many many years is to split the generations more than than would have been the case in the past with more you know my husband's Indian and I said we lived in India for a while and it is much more common to have multi-generational families at home and so on there we don't have as much as that and I think that's where the kind of it works both ways, doesn't it? Assumptions about what young people are like and assumptions of what old people are like are only really possible when you don't know that many of them because you can't generalise about everyone. So, yes, I think it works both ways that people get great depth. And what I, one of the things I've loved is hearing stories of how, you know, whilst there may be a 26-year-old teaching the now teacher how to teach and getting them re-engaging with the science curriculum or whatever it is and being the absolute expert there, they may at one and the same time be being guided through why it is quite important to sign up for a pension and how they could perhaps be thinking about their own career or, you know, how to sign up for a mortgage, you know, life stuff. (laughs) And I, I love that, those kind of shared learnings that will happen inadvertently, nothing to do with teaching really. 
and we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. You're listening to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Our guest is Katie Waldergrove, co-founder of the UK charity Now Teach. Just picking up the thought and the strand of our conversation just now, I think one of the great attributes of, of older people is the wisdom of having lived for a long time, for several decades. Uh, that presumably is a great asset when you decide that you want to do something very significantly new and, and learn a new craft. Yeah, absolutely. Not not least, I suppose, just the sense of time. I mean, I remember start learning to teach. I think I must have cried every day that first year. And it also felt like it was sort of all the world would ever be and that it would go on forever in some way that I never articulated to myself. And I think when you're a little older, you've, you know, a year, it will pass. There's something about kind of keeping things in perspective in a different way, knowing that things change, knowing what you can hope for, that that just brings a different a different way of perceiving all of that. But absolutely, you form, you know, it's a slightly a thing that bugs me is oh, wise, old people are all wise. I think there's some wise young people in Paris and very foolish old people. But you definitely, you know, if you select the right ones anyway, the right now teachers, there's something that is gained about the way you relate to people at the very, you know, the, you form a different type of relationship and in a way that is quite hard to articulate, but also in some ways that are very simple to articulate in the school context. You know, when I started teaching, I was teaching eight, 11 to 18 year olds and I was 22. So I was four years, years older than these children. And that is quite complicated in obvious ways. Whereas if you are 50 something teaching an 18 year old and you've probably had children yourself or likely had children yourself, you're going to relate in a very, very different way. And likewise, their parents, who to me were sort of terrifyingly old, you know, 45 year olds or something, are also quite young. And I would try and sound very authoritative and say, well, the thing is very important that, you know, Rakshmi must do such and such and such. And actually, I had no idea. Um, and I think as a parent, or anyway, it doesn't matter about a parent, an older person who was engaged with the world and younger people, you talk to parents differently. You you can sort of see it from their their side. You don't go into a parent's evening terrified of all these grown-ups who are going to be cross. And so it, just, it just is so different to my experience of training to teach. And I think I would have valued training alongside an our teacher. Yeah, it's really interesting. Just, just hearing you talk there, thinking back to when I was at school and most of my teachers were probably quite young. I mean, significantly younger than I am now. And clearly, therefore, they're going to relate to those people who are probably old enough to be their grandparents mm -hmm. now teaching them in the classroom. Have you, in terms of the, the teachers that you've worked with that have gone through this process, have you heard any sort of anecdotal stories about those uh, relationships between students and teachers that are significantly different? Well, I think one very simple thing, which is, I suppose, linked to age, but not only age, is, is the way in which now teachers talk about the things they did before that is interesting to children. You know, the best will in the world. I, I at 22, couldn't have talked about 
anything from, you know, whether it's the experience of having a children or, you know, or, or traveling or the work I had done or the jobs, the careers. And when it came to thinking about work experience and all that kind of stuff, I wouldn't have known really where, where to begin. So I think, you know, there's a lot of just very tangibly different things that you bring. And I think also the funny thing is, of course, I remember when I started to teach somebody, a student saying to me, how old are you? She must have been in year seven, sort of 11. I said, well, I guess, stupid thing to say. And, you know, the guesses ranged from 72 to whatever. And I was 22. The children tend to have fairly little idea. Like you say, your teachers just seemed old. (laughs) They seem to be fairly kind of unable to distinguish between maybe the older ones, but, uh, you know, the older children can. But I think amongst staff, there is something kind of, Wonderful, but not least because if you go from being a sort of acclaimed journalist, whatever you are, to a trainee teacher who's clearly not very good at what they're doing, that's immensely flattering as a starter for somebody, you know, to think, actually, this job I'm doing and I'm now quite good at age 30, this person thinks is important and interesting and valuable enough to to give up probably salary, certainly ease and degree of autonomy to do because it's that important. So I think that's powerful. And you know, it didn't always work. We've certainly had now teachers who've had to learn to kind of, in those first couple of years, not, not necessarily give too much advice about you know, the way the management might be wrong, which it might be, but you know, there's a kind of degree of... <laughs> right. so, not be too outspoken. Not too outspoken. So, so it doesn't, you know, it's not always perfect, but there is often something kind of amazing in, for example, a relationship between a now teacher and a head teacher, where perhaps by age and stage, they, you know, by age rather, they are very close perhaps, mm. but by stage, top and bottom... But it almost can give space for a different kind of relationship that the head teacher can sort of almost use as a sounding board. They're not threatening. They don't want the job. They tend not to want to rise sort of up in a typical fashion. They've done they've done that. They're here to be classroom teachers. And so that can be a very valuable relationship, I think. Now you're obviously talking about teaching, but the obvious extension to this is what about now? Right. Now, professional gardener. Now, compute. I mean, it could apply to not every profession for probably physical reasons, but, but certainly Certainly many. to many. No, it's funny you should say that because we've just been toying with this idea. Well, there's two things. One is, is a sort of not temporarily at least called now what, which wouldn't in my case be about things like now garden, though I think it's a wonderful concept, but thinking about the sort of frontline public sector roles. You know, we are in a period of huge sort of <laughs> strife in all kinds of ways, as everybody knows, economies declining, recruitment crisis in so many of these public sector roles that are completely critical. And we have, uh, meanwhile, you know, the missing million people falling out of the workplace in this country, at least, and I imagine similarly in, in the US and elsewhere. Um, and it's a very strange time in that sense. Meanwhile, with it feels to me that with things like Ukraine and even COVID, there's been this sort of renewed sense of maybe the importance of community and, and how we do need to be pulling together, not perhaps from the top, but from, uh, in a more grassroots way. So I feel like my hope is that now Teach showed that people would do this entirely illogical thing and quit sensible, well-paid jobs often to do something very, very hard, not very well paid, at least at the beginning, and do it. And so I'm just working on the idea of launching now foster. We have a huge issue here with not being able to recruit enough foster carers. And I think one could look at it in a similar way. And, and you know, perhaps that gap between 
children leaving home and grandchildren, that's a great moment to to potentially foster. And just just to focus in on the precise role of Now Teach, yeah. you are there to advise people, to encourage people to make the connections? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So our our job is to is to attract them to it, essentially to create the the market, if you like, that, that this might be a thing worth considering. And lots of people have considered it, but you kind of want to be asked, if you know what I mean. All the posters have a picture of a young person, all the campaigns have been for young people. So you saw lot almost everybody's first question is am I too old? I am and fill in the blank, it doesn't really matter what age they are, they think they're too old. And then, you know, it's been too long since I studied or, you know, schools won't want me or all this kind of stuff. So our job is to, yes, to market, to attract, to advise. In this country, at least, teacher training is ridiculously complicated. It's one of those classic examples of a thing where you would never invent it like this, but you can't really unpick it. So it's wildly complicated, lots of different routes and options. So we advise and support and partner with training providers, but we aren't the training provider itself. And then, and in my view, almost the most crucially, we we form a network of these now teachers. And that's where I get really optimistic is that, of course, it's fantastic to have these individuals in different schools. But if you could have a group of, you know, ex-accountants getting together and thinking, well, hold on here, we could we could have a different look at the way that you know, I now understand more about how my school budget operates and we should have a think about this. Or ex-broadcasters and journalists thinking about how you might integrate some of those things into the English curriculum. Or, you know, it, that's where, to me, it becomes really exciting. And that's not immediate, but it's three, four, ten years down the line. The opportunities are endless when you think about it and, and you mm, explain it in that way. I believe so. I'm curious. This is a, obviously a podcast about human longevity. It is not about living forever, but this is yeah. about living as, as long as we can and enjoying good health health, physically good health, good mental health as well. And what I've learned, apart from the exercise that I mentioned, the diet, which is hugely important, but it is about our social connections as we grow older. It's what we do with our lives. It's who we mix with, who we learn from, uh, what we aspire to do in the future. It's often about looking forward that that keeps people going, especially their their mental health. Um, From your perspective, how do you view the years ahead, the decades ahead? You've probably, you've thought about this much more deeply than most. Uh, You've gleaned clearly a lot of knowledge from the people that you associate with, but has it affected your view of the years ahead? Yes, I think think it has. And you would think I would have thought about it much more perhaps than I have. But I, <laughs> I, I think that what I see in our teachers is all the things that you describe that so often as people get more senior in their job, actually, even irrespective of COVID, people sort of fit into the little, the little kind of boxes that you and I are looking at now. You become more and more removed from from real life, real people, a real place, if you like. You sort of travel about, but you don't... And that, I think, is something that people relish, belonging, as you said, to have a community. And, uh, you know, everybody talks about the flexible working revolution, you know, working from home. It's it's wonderful. There's lots of reasons. It's great. But actually, what we need as humans, I think, is real connections. And my goodness, do schools give that something more real? And a sense of purpose, clearly. I was listening to your podcast with the wonderful Catherine Etsy earlier and her talking mm. about that that thing of a sense of purpose and a sense, you know, she may have retired from, from her day job, but she's still writing and she's still, you know, that sense of future possibility. I, I think when you lose that, surely that's when it, it begins to feel very, very depressing. And so for myself, what I think I have seen and, and loved is the sense of of possibility of of starting 
again, that question that they all ask, aged whatever it is, but let's say 58, I must be too old for this. And when the answer is a resounding no, that applies to a whole bunch of stuff. And the 58-year-olds ask it, the 68-year-olds ask it, you know, that seems to me the biggest lesson. It gives me hope when I'm, I'm in that stage of life with a yeah, six, six and a two-year-old. So sometimes it all feels a bit kind of treadmilly to get back to where we were again in the beginning with the house vaguely under control and everything's all quite well on. But the sense that I might just start again and do something entirely different. And I don't know what I'll be doing when I'm 55. I love that. And does it help, and you mentioned Catherine there, does it help to hear the stories of other people in your same sort of age frame? Those, I mean, she is an inspiration, yeah. as, as you say. And, and there are many others yeah. like that who've made that decision at, at whatever age that I'm going to write another mm-hmm. book or I'm going to design another garden. I'm going to teach in another classroom, whatever the aspiration is. I think personally, I think that hearing those stories is a source of huge encouragement to a lot of people. And uh, we live in a quite a, especially the last couple of years, quite an isolated kind of world that we we need to hear these stories. I absolutely agree. And I think it's almost more than than kind of encouragement. When I look at, I look at, say, my parents who are 76 and 70, and their parents at 76 and 70 were really old. You know, that just was old. I mean, they were all pretty much at my age. I'm 41. Um, And my mum does not look 70. She doesn't behave what in her head 70 probably is because her in her head 70 must be what her mother was at 70, really, and her mother's friends. And it isn't anything like that. She doesn't wear the same clothes. She doesn't do the same things. She doesn't... So the generation above mine is kind of making it up. Um, You know, we've added these years somewhere in life and there's that gymnast whose name I've forgotten, a German lady. They keep inventing categories for her. She's now 105 or something ridiculous and she's still doing routines on the beam and stuff. You don't know. It's, it's almost, it's more than encouragement. It's a kind of invention of what is possible, I guess, of, of, of a model of being, a way of being that just hasn't been there. And I suppose people like Catherine are making up that model. They wouldn't have been 87-year-olds when she was young. Who were very, they just, they just don't think there would have been, or very, very, very few. Great good fortune to be that healthy and that everything else. And one thing I think that is helpful is, although we're using it in this kind of isolated world, we're moving out of those times, obviously, but technology mm-hmm. is clearly helpful. And you and I talking in little boxes because, well, it, it's serving yeah. a purpose. And I think there's a, there are a lot of benefits to it in this world. It, it, it's helping make the world... Actually, I think a smaller place. But for those people in their 60s, 70s, it doesn't have to be as isolated as it once was. Absolutely. I mean, and I think 60s, 70s feel to me at least very different to what they were. But I think of, you know, I think of my aunts and great aunts in their sort of late 80s, 90s. Well, actually, my aunt who's 88 is still working very hard. But people can connect with their grandchildren, even if they're not in the same country. All that kind of stuff is just, it must be, must be so different. I know you could write letters and things, but but not quite the same. Not quite the same. Yeah, exactly. I, I just a little story. I was uh, working with someone much younger than me a few days ago, 36 years old, I think he was, and age wasn't the topic of mm. conversation. But I just happened to throw into the conversation without really thinking about it. I said, people of our generation, mm. and I thought, hang on a sec, I'm almost twice your age. And I think it does illustrate how generations can be closer together in in mindset. We were working on a project together, doing exactly the same thing, but from different generations. That When I was perhaps a a child or entering my profession, I wouldn't have had the same train of thought working with someone so 
significantly older. It's really interesting, isn't it? But I think it's so important that there are those opportunities to be working on the same project with the 36-year-old, which there aren't in all industries. You know, I think we have a cliched idea that old people are rubbish at technology. I think that is one of those things that we say. And in fact, that older people often, you know, that whole internalised ageism thing, I find completely fascinating. You know, my mum is always saying to my grandchildren, her grandchildren, and I try and stop her. She always, oh, silly old granny, you know, I can't remember anything these days. She's amazing. She doesn't, but she sort of, it's almost instinctive. She doesn't, she doesn't not remember or not more than me. But the opportunity to do that so that when we have now teachers, we recruit with now teach. I'm going to make it up, maybe wrong on this, but I think we recruit more or almost as many computer science teachers as, as as there are practically in the whole country. I mean, we were, there are so few computer science teachers. So, But we seem to have spotted that actually people who have made a career in computer science, this may be the time they want to go back and go and give back, as opposed to the young graduates who've got the world at their feet in terms of what they can do with a computer science degree. And that upends people's ideas of what, what old, you know, of course, they know far more than anyone else in the school about it. They may not know the details of Snapchat, but they understand computers in a different way. And so so having that opportunity to realise that just changes our perception. So just in, in closing, now Teach has a, I think, a great future. I mean, we've, we've touched on lots of the different avenues that you could potentially go down. Do you have a vision of what you might be doing in a, a decade's time? In a funny way, I kind of, I hope, I mean, now Teach feels, feels like a baby. So I hope I'll always have a role in it matches with first story but I think I suppose I sort of hope I might be doing something entirely different that I might have decided to do another qualification or gone to art school I don't know and and but I I suppose that's the part that feels liberating I think that I I honestly don't know I might still be doing this and if things grow and expand that would be wonderful and if it still feels exciting and interesting but it, it seems to me that our whole relationship with sort of education, work, education, you know, this model of you learn at the beginning, then you work, then you sort of retire and then die. That's all just got to shift. It's going to be learn, work, learn, learn and work, learn, you know, and relearn and change. And that, that seems interesting to me. That seems good. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think the fact that it is, to some extent, an uncertain future is what makes it exciting and worth yes. leaping into. Yeah. Yeah. Katie Waldegrave, really, really interesting. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me and good luck with the rest of the podcast, which I think is brilliant. And I, I appreciate that and, and good luck with everything you do. I think it's really worthwhile and I'm going to follow it closely and uh, who knows, I might be doing something entirely different in five years' time. I was going to say I might send you an expression of interest form just in case. <laughs> Yes, there you go. We shall see. Katie, thank you. If you look at the show notes for this episode, you'll find a transcript of this conversation and some other resources. I'll put a a link to, to Katie's work and to Now Teach, and you can explore it much more. The Llama Podcast is a Healthspan Media production. We will be back with another episode very soon. In the meantime, do take care, and thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. 
Lexby. I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.